Hello, hello, NodPod. Thank you so much for being back with us again this week. Ugh, you guys are so important to me. I hope you know that. I love doing the show and I love the community, the Chasing Heroin community online. I don't know why I just suddenly like got really grateful for you guys. I mean, I always am, but as I started this, I just got so happy that this is like a thing that has grown and you guys share and you DM me and give me your thoughts and feedback. And I just really love, I think that social media can be a good thing. Obviously it can be a bad thing, but it can be a good thing. And for like the recovery world, social media can really enlighten people and educate people and we can share and laugh and you know. So anyways, love you guys, love you guys. Thanks for listening again this week. I loved this interview. She is the creator of Sun and Moon Sober Living and it's not a house sober living. This is really cool, It's, it's all online but there's like a program attached as though you were going to sober living. And she healed her alcoholism and addiction through 12 step, but also through the practice of yoga and meditation and just getting like connected to her body. She's just got the coolest story. So this is always very amazing to me when someone does this. She was not at rock bottom the way that I would call rock bottom. When she stopped, she still had a job. She was getting promoted in her career and she was like doing well, but she was secretly doing coke and things were starting to feel chaotic. And I asked her and she gives the best answer to this. I've asked people before on the show that are in similar situations, what is the internal marker? If it's not an external consequence, what is the internal marker that you or someone could look for to let you know my substance or my alcoholism has gotten to a place where I don't want it. And I love the answer that she gave. So you guys got to listen for that because it just, I don't know, it just like struck me. And I think it's so probably accurate. So she had this great career, stepped away from it, ended up moving overseas. She lived in Southeast Asia for a long time. Just like, just the coolest woman. She's got this great story. And the way that she put to words the benefit of physical movement in recovery is just like so eloquent. And the whole time she's talking, I'm like, yep, that's what I think too. Like, yep, that's right. I don't even know how I'm gonna be able to pick a clip from this one. So anyways, I hope you guys love the episode. Sun and Moon Sober Living on Instagram. Sun and Moon Sober Living is her website. Please connect with her. I'm so, I was so happy and honored to have her as a guest. And I know that you guys are gonna love this one also. As always, NodPod, let me know what you think. All right. Thanks, guys. Bye. All right. Welcome back, NodPod. Thank you guys so much for joining me for another episode of Chasing Heroin. Today I have, I was just actually recently on her podcast as well, who hosts a podcast. And she also has like a really cool concept for sober living. So hi, Mary. Welcome. (sighs) Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to continue our conversation because I think we could have chatted for two hours on my podcast or more. We literally could have just kept talking for hours. Like finally, I think at like an hour and a half, you were like, do you have to go? And I was like, I guess I should go, but I don't even know if we talked about any recovery. I go off the rails like that sometimes too, you know? So you're sober living. I want to start actually by just telling people about this because this is really cool. I've actually never heard of this. I don't know if you're the only person that does this. But talk about your sober living. Yeah. So I started an online platform called Sun and Moon Sober Living. And as I was saying to you, I think some people confuse it. It's not a sober living house, but the concept is it's an online 
virtual community and also offline too. We have retreats now, but it's a space where people can come together and explore a holistic approach to recovery. And it's an inclusive community for people who are sober and sober curious, who are just looking for ways to free themselves from substances or harmful behaviors. And so we do workshops, there's yoga and mindfulness training, meditation, you know, a lot of just traditional recovery work. And the most important part to me is the online community. So we have weekly meetings, sometimes more than that. That's really cool. So people can be anywhere and join your program and get, is it like a daily structure similar to sober living? I mean, can you do like a five day a week program or do you kind of pick and choose like structurally? How does that work? So right now what's offered is weekly meetings over Zoom. So that's every week. And then there's an on-demand library of a whole bunch of resources. So some training and workshops and classes. And sometimes we have workshops like sprinkled in throughout the week. We recently did a breathwork one, for example. And then, yeah, every month there's a different theme that we explore. So this month it's all about becoming unstuck. And I think Frank was on your podcast. So we're reading her book, The Science of Stuck. And yeah, and so we're always learning together, growing together, and it's just a really supportive space. And there's a chat group that goes off regularly. So we have a private chat community. So it's really about allowing people to stay connected and plugged into the sober community online. And a key thing for me is welcoming people all across the spectrum of substance use. So there's some people who really identify as kind of gray area drinkers who are just you know, they're not really, they wouldn't really identify as struggling with addiction necessarily, but they know that substances are causing a problem in their lives and they want to explore how a sober lifestyle could support them. And then of course there's people who are in recovery from addiction. I love that you guys are doing Britt Frank's book. When I read her book, I remember thinking this would be amazing to do a workshop too. Have you reached out to her and and told her that you're doing that? Because she would love this. Yes, I'm actually interviewing her for the podcast. Um, Oh, cool. Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to talking to her about it. So I kind of aligned the book of the month with that episode coming out. Oh, that's so cool. That's awesome. Yeah, I love her. Before, after we're done, I want to know a little bit more about like how you're structuring it. But that book was one of the most like instrumental books in my self-healing like work that I've done or like, you know, develop personal development and growth. Like I loved that book so much. I found it like radically helpful. Yes. And you know what I love so much about it is how she's laid it out where you can easily pick a chapter that you identify most with, you know, whether that's looking at anxiety or addiction and just jump around. And the book is structured in such a way where that totally works. So it's sort of like a manual and yeah, it's really, really nicely done. Well, and I love that. And and that's like an outside the box kind of thing for a sober living to do. So that's really, really cool. Are you like the program director? Are you the person that puts it all together? Yeah. So I've created the online platform and I always bring in guest teachers or practitioners. So like with the breath work and we recently did a workshop on the nervous system and brought in a yoga therapist for that. So I bring in different people to help support the program and offer trainings and things like that. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. We should talk. I actually do a yoga step workshop. Are you guys 12 step? It's not 12 step based, but you know, I do, I benefited a lot from the 12 steps myself and I know that you're the same. And I think that there's so much wisdom in the 12 steps that people can benefit from, even if they never walk in the rooms of AA or they don't resonate at all, you know, with a community 
which I know some people, they just, they don't identify with certain or don't relate to certain parts of it. But I think that to be able to teach, you know, the wisdom of the 12 steps is so valuable for everyone. Yeah, it's really cool. So I do it with like physical movements that embody the principles of recovery. So you can do it even without like saying the words, but we should talk about that later too, because that could be really cool and easily done online, you know? Definitely. I would love that. So let's get to how you got to a point where you are starting an online sober living platform. You are in recovery yourself. I know you live in Colorado now. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Yeah, so I am originally from the suburbs outside of Chicago. I grew up in a suburb called Wilmette. And yeah, I have I was born into a very close, loving family, supportive parents. I had four siblings. And yeah, I mean, where it all began, I started experimenting with substances pretty young. I was 13 years old and it started to me, it seemed pretty harmless when I started off. I was drinking and smoking weed and it wasn't until later that I realized how much of that was tied into just not really having a lot of emotional tools or skills. You know, my dad always references a story when I was really young My dad always tells this story about how when I was a little kid, he overheard me saying to other kids, like, don't let them see you cry. It means that they won, you know? And so that was kind of my mentality. I was like this like tough girl that like, I really couldn't allow people to see my emotions. And I I don't remember at what point that I picked that up. I just remember it was always very hard for me to ask for help or for people to see me cry or anything like that. And I think with substances, like they just, substances really helped me just feel more comfortable in my own skin. I also had a lot of insecurities that I don't think I was aware of so much. And, you know, that really critical inner dialogue. And so for me, it's like to be able to drink and smoke and hang out with my friends, it was just so natural that that became part of my social life. So where do you think that tough kid act came from? Were you allowed to share emotions when you were young or was there sort of like this idea of of maybe not sharing emotions within the family dynamic? Or do you think you got that like from school or where do you think that came from? You know, it's funny because I don't think it came from, it wasn't something that was necessarily like part of my family dynamic because I wouldn't necessarily say that my other siblings were like that. I think part of it might've been for me, like, you know, growing up, I was surrounded by a lot of boys, like in the neighborhood and, and all of that. And I think it was just, I think part of it is sometimes we're just born a certain way too. Like I, I don't really know it. Yeah. So for me, I always, this is why I'm wondering if maybe this is where it came from. Cause I also had like a great family and I was a weirdo. When I was a kid, I mean, I actually wasn't a weirdo, but like in terms of like the way I appeared socially, but like I was always trying to be a character from a TV show or or a movie. And it was always like a badass kind of character. And I would try to adopt some of those like tendencies and I would say things that I like read. Do you think there was like a movie or is there like a book that you read when you were a little kid and maybe you were like adopting like a female hero's point of view? (laughs) Yeah, it's so funny because if you look at pictures of me when I was younger, I had a mushroom cut exactly like my brother's. I was in the oversized Bulls jerseys. We grew up in Chicago when it was like the Michael Jordan era, like the Bulls three-peat repeat. And my player was Dennis Rodman. Like my brother's like, you know, I was like, (laughs) you would never think that seeing me now. But 
it's so funny. So like, even, you know, when I was, I did skating lessons with my brother when I was younger and the teacher mistaked me for his brother, Larry. And I was like too shy to say anything about it. But I think maybe in my mind, it was like, that's just how I needed to be to fit in. I really don't know. But yeah, that's just, that's just the way that I was. Yeah. To some extent, I feel like kids gravitate to different things and it's like kids being kids. But I also think there's definitely an element to addict kids adopting personas because we don't think our persona is enough. And something about me, I like you maybe gravitated more towards like a masculine energy plus like the standout like Rodman, right? With the crazy hair and stuff, you know, <laughs> that that was like your person. I remember I read this book. I forgot about this till right now. And I would love if anybody in the non-pod community has ever heard of this book or read it, but I doubt it. It was called The Borables. And it was about these elves that went underground and they had like a war underground and there was like a King Borable. I'm not going to get in the weeds with this, but he was like this awful king and I wanted to be like him and I would act like him because he was like tough. I literally forgot about that book until this second, but it was my favorite book in like third grade. But that's interesting that you gravitated to that. So you think there's like an addict element to that too? Because you said you think some of it is just innate. I mean, the reason that I referenced that is that I think for me, substances just felt like a nice sense of relief because it's like when you're not comfortable to be able to cry or show like quote unquote weakness through, you know, having a hard time or needing support with something like you're not really able to fully be yourself. And so substances, I think for a lot of people, like we turn to them as some form of like emotional regulation or, you know, relief. And it's only looking back that I've tried to kind of like put the pieces together that I've come to realize like why I gravitated so much towards them And just like, you know, I'm someone who was always outgoing, but, you know, I was also someone that needed to warm up socially around people. And so substances were just, I just thought it was the greatest thing ever in high school. Like my friends and I, we would drink at every opportunity. You know, we were always like sneaking around in someone's basement or, you know, we would go to the beach near Lake Michigan and we had this little circle of trees where we would get high and we had these little bubblers that we bought from downtown Chicago. And so- Wait, for smoking weed? What's a Bubbler, like a bong? Yeah, it was like these little, I remember we would take the L train to Belmont and it was this little, these blue, it was like two bubbles and it had water at the bottom. Oh, and like I remember, the bong. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm picturing, this is so gross, I'm picturing a quag for meth, which is completely different. It's a 7-Eleven bottle with the bottom cut off so multiple people can <laughs> smoke meth at once. But I also remember bongs from like a while ago and that's, to- okay, so you would go buy bubblers, you called them. And you'd smoke weed in the woods. That sounds really fun. Yeah. And you know, it's so funny. My dad was like horrified when he found that out because he's like, how stupid do you have to be to be at the public beach? Or like, I remember one time we went to the sailing harbor and we were like on someone's boat and the police came and it was though, you know, in high school, it was like, it all felt very harmless. Like, you know, we I was drinking a ton and smoking and it was like, there were times when I like just got away from the police and things like that, but no major consequences really And it wasn't until I went away to college that, you know, it started to become like cocaine and Adderall and ecstasy. And I think back at those early times, like I was really seeking those things out. Like, whereas some of like my friends would be a little bit more hesitant when that started to show up at parties. Like I just remember, and I question this, I'm like, why was I so actively trying to like seek out that next high, you know? But 
I'll never forget the first time that I did cocaine. It was like I was with a friend and we, you know, we were trying to find it. And we got to this apartment with the these guys house and we didn't want to say that we had never done it before, but we were like so they like laid it out. They like cut these lines and I was like, "Okay, like you go first. And she's like, "No, no, no. You go first." And <laughs> it was cuz like now, I mean, fast forward a few months and it would have never gone down like that, but it was just funny. So, yeah. So, as soon as I tried it though, like I knew from the first time that I tried cocaine, I was like, "This is it." Like I loved it and I loved the way it like just brought out this side of my personality. You know, it's like the inflated confidence and it was super, super social. You know, I was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. I was part of the Greek life. And so to me, it was like, okay, like I can take a- yeah. You were in a sorority doing this shit? Oh yeah. Can't you That's- get in a lot of trouble? I have a friend who like runs a sorority. She still does alumni work for them. And she just had to like fly to another state to do a panel because a bunch of them got in trouble for stuff and they had to go in front of like a panel. Can't you get in trouble for that kind of thing? Or is it common anyways? I didn't do sorority. Well, it's super common, but I will say like one of the most shameful, uh, not, I mean, among many things, but it was very, very common. I mean, in the Greek life, there's a ton of partying, but my junior year, so there's something called a rogamma. So there's the whole thing is just so ridiculous. I laugh thinking back on it, but there's rush week where you're going and, you know, you're meeting people at the different houses. And I wanted to be a rogamma, which means you don't have to do any of the responsibilities of rush, which means you don't have to learn these dances and you don't have to do all the things to set up with meeting the new girls, all you do is, you know, when the girls come, you just walk them around like the new freshmen, you take them and you're supposed to not tell anyone which house you're in. You're supposed to be like just a guide helping them go through the whole process. And so of course, in my mind, I'm like, okay, I'll get out of the whole process. Cause I don't, I don't want to do any of this stuff. Like I just want to party and, you know, do whatever. But of course, I think I'll just fill up, you know, a coffee <gasps> mug and walk around with these freshmen during the rest week while I'm drinking. And so I pre-gamed and then I had this, you know, and every so you're supposed to be anonymous. And every time we'd show up at a house, I'd be like waving to my friends and be laughing. And I would be like, and you know, halfway through the thing, they realized, obviously, like I smelled like it. And I think probably some girls commented. And so I was brought to, you know, there's like the board and it that's was, what I'm talking about. Okay. The thing yeah. where you have to go like stand in front of the panel or whatever. Yeah. It's funny. Cause I've never even in my mind thought of this as one of those bottom moments. Cause it feels like I had like a bunch of them, but it really was like, I always laughed it off and was like, Oh, ha, ha like acted like I didn't care. But that was one of those moments that was like super shameful because I just remember it was sort of like, you couldn't just like for one night, like this is so embarrassing for our whole house. Like you're walking around drunk on this, you know, night. And this is what you're like demonstrating to all of the new people coming in. And again, it was like, I just pretended that I thought it was really funny, but I didn't, you know, I felt really embarrassed about that. And like, I really did feel like it was one of those things where you're just like, yeah, that was like. So what did they, what was like your punishment? What did they say? So I wasn't allowed to be part of it anymore. And I think at that point I ended up dropping out of the Greek system my junior oh, you year did. anyway. Yeah. So okay, okay. it was, you know, it's, 
I think sometimes you think about the Greek life and we have these like stereotypes in our head from the movies. And some of the schools like in the South really are like that. But in Boulder, it's very casual. So I kind of saw it. And a lot of my friends did. It was like a really great way to meet friends. And I had an amazing time. You know, it was, like I said, it was very loose. It wasn't as strict as some of the other schools in terms of the things that you have to do. But I ended up meeting some of my best friends through that process. And No, and- I, I think it looks really cool. Like in, a, in another life, so I have my life where I was a bit nerdy in high school and went to GW for debate. In another life, my parents went to Florida State and my dad played baseball there. In another life, I stayed cheerleading and I went to Florida State and I was like, a rush girl, like the Alabama TikTok girls where you have to do all the things like in this other world, that's me. Like, I don't know. I think it's, I know you're saying that yours was a little bit looser, but like even the strict ones in the South, something about it looks very, it's still kind of like appealing to me. You know, I don't know. It's, I see why people do it. I have a question about the cocaine. So you were seeking it out before you'd ever done it. I did that too, which is kind of odd. I did that too, big time. Were you seeking out the feeling that you thought it might elicit? Or did you want to be a part of the behavior because the behavior seemed appealing to you somehow? I think it was both. Because I look back and it was like, I remember even when I was 13, it was like, I found out that there was this kid who had recently transferred over to our school and had weed. And I just remember, like, I really wanted to try it because I just knew it was like something you weren't supposed to do. And Same with like smoking cigarettes. Like I was so excited about the idea of like smoking, like we'd hide out behind my house. And I think with cocaine, it was a mix of that, just like trying something that maybe it was like, I wasn't really supposed to do. But also I loved the idea of like, I really loved to like go out and party and meet people and the possibility of a drug that could allow me to be like a more upbeat, outgoing version of myself, not get tired after drinking too much, but be able to keep going. Like there were just so many things about it that really seemed like the miracle drug. That's how I thought of it. Like at the beginning, it really felt like that to me because it was before there were any consequences that came along with it. And so it was like, I leaned into that so much and it was crazy because all of a sudden it was like, I had this like sense for where it was. All of a sudden I realized that it was actually way more present than I ever realized. And so I could be at parties and kind of piece together like, oh, I bet someone's like, what's going on in that back room? Or maybe that's the person. And, and so anyway, I really, it became a really big part of my social life at that time. But the problem was doing cocaine like that, you know, consistently throughout the night, I could drink way more and I never got sick from my drinking. I would just black out. And so I was doing, you know, I was staying, not getting very much sleep, staying up doing cocaine, able to drink way more. And then all of a sudden it was like, I started to go down this downward spiral where I knew, and this is before like that story I just told with the getting kicked out of the rush thing. It was like, I really felt like, at least in my mind, the way that I saw it, it was like when I first came in, I felt like, this, you know, party girl having fun away at college, meeting new people. It all just felt very lighthearted, just centered around having a good time. And then it was like, things started to get dark really quickly. Like I remember I would black out and I would like send this stream of text messages to like my boyfriend at the time, or I would say things that were really out of character, or I would like just all these little things. And I would wake up with these vague recollections or like sometimes a message history. And 
I would just be like overwhelmed with anxiety. And of course, a lot of that I now know is like coming down from the substances too, but I just felt super paranoid. And that real feeling of like hiding, like, you know, you're kind of looking around, like, what do they know? What did they see? Like, you think you remember, but not really. And so my answer was like, let's go get Bloody Marys. You know, like every morning I wanted to start the day with like, going out for drinks. And of course that wasn't possible every day because there was class. And mind you, during this time, I was still like maintaining good grades. That was where like, I would oftentimes use Adderall in order to keep up with class and especially on finals week and things like that. And so, yeah, things started to like really go south during that time. And I also just started to recognize that people were starting to see me really differently. It was like, it was no longer that kind of like silly, fun, drunk type of party behavior. It was... I was going to ask that. So I have a, I have another question first. So what type of text messages would you send to your boyfriend saying what? I, just like, I don't even remember. Like it was like just incoherent and mean, you know? Oh, sure. And just to other people too. Like it was just mean and like it didn't make any sense uh, yeah okay. like it was like and you, like I would be scared actually to look back at the history because I remember like I, I genuinely would just again it's like that avoidance behavior like I was like oh forget that you know delete right. like it didn't happen no, but I, I can feel it right now I haven't sent a dumbass like drunk <laughs> or or substance abuse adult text in a long time, but just thinking about it right now is like horrifying. I actually, I had a, a boyfriend I was with in Venice and he would, in LA, and he would, he was so bad about doing that. He had a separate phone where he kept his contacts, like his good friends, and he left it in a closet with the battery out. So oh my God. he had to like really think twice before he started shooting text messages to people when we were all like fucked up. And I was like, that's actually a pretty good solution. So you would just send like wild things. And then that was my next question. Did people around you start to like say things and comment on what you were doing? Yeah, well... Again, like it goes back to that thing of not having really any like emotional like coping skills or ways to know how to deal with that. So my response was just to like kind of delete, hope nobody found out. And I would just feel really paranoid and shameful, but I would never be able to address it head on. Like I could never apologize or address things. So like, yeah, definitely. I mean, things that I remember one time a friend of mine saying to me like, you get really weird around cocaine, you know? And I was just sort of like, what do you mean? Like everybody's doing it. I was so sharp, like and defensive. But I remember there would be times when I would, I would almost come up to people like fiending for it, you know? Like I would be like, I know you have it. And I would remember the next day and be so embarrassed. And there was one time that really stands out to me too, that like I was walking home from a party and, you know, I ended up stopping at this house, which was like, you know, where you go late at night. It was like a shady place. And one of my friends dropped me off while he was walking home and I sat down and I ended up snorting a line of ketamine thinking it was cocaine. And it was like one of the scariest moments of my life. And I used to joke about it like afterwards, again, it was always like the humor. And, but I remember like, I felt that and I started messaging him and I was like, please come back, like help me, help me, help me. And I, I think he knew that like I was surrounded by some questionable characters and I mean, which I was one of them, so no judgment, <laughs> but- uh, What happens when you snort ketamine? What started to happen? I like fell back into the couch and I literally felt like my body was melting away. Like as I was messaging, I was literally like, 
help, 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 help. Like, I need you to get here quickly. And, you know, when I told the story, so like my friends would always laugh about this story, but do you know the scene in old school when he gets shot with a dart in his neck? And they're like, and everything starts to go blurry. Like after I described it as like people like, that's not cocaine. Like that's ketamine. And like, I'm like, one of the best lines from that movie ever from that scene when he's like, you've got a fucking dart in your neck. Exactly. (laughs) Like Like, that's what I'm hearing. Like the slow motion. (laughs) Yes. That's exactly what I'm hearing. People like telling me like, no, that's ketamine. And like, I was just fading so quickly and, you know, like, I don't want to make light of it. Like I joked about it for so long afterwards because it was, it was, that was always my, that was my response was to make a joke out of it. But I, I texted my friend and he came back and I remember like he was helping me because it was snowy. It was in Boulder, Colorado and it was icy and like, he's kind of like dragging me along and my legs are like, like I was like not able to hold myself up. Like my whole body was just like completely But you know, the craziest thing was when it wore off and during the whole, like while I was on it, I was very upset and I was freaked out. But after it started to wear off, I was like, I'd love to try that again. Like that was, and you know, he reminded me of that like the next day and was like, that was really scary. And, you know, I deflected that on, there was another friend was there and I blamed that on her. Like I was like, I cannot believe she put me in that situation. And like, to be fair, you know, I was led to believe that it was cocaine, but at the end of the day, like there is some level of accountability there. And so to me, my response was like, I can't believe that person put me in this situation. Do you think that it was on purpose? Was somebody there trying to like assault you? Do you think, or were they just actually like doing ketamine? No, it it. was just, yeah, no, I think it was just a lot of people who were pretty incoherent and um, I found myself in a situation where I was pretty incoherent too. It was probably three in the morning at the time that it happened. But that was just another one of those moments where for me, it was like, I could always laugh it off and I, you know, I'm still telling that story laughing. And like, at the same time, I was like, I'd have these internal conversations with myself where I was like, what is wrong with you? You know, like I just knew that like there was an also a part of me that like really didn't think it was funny and was like kind of pretty horrified at how bad things had gotten and that that knew that like that wasn't just other people's fault that I put myself in that situation. Was that before the sorority thing? Like when was this in your college career? Were you still going to school? Yeah, I was. Yeah. So I was like, I mean, this is the crazy thing is like, I was still maintaining my grades and that was something that my parents were pretty adamant about with me going away to Boulder because it's kind of like, you know, they just thought, what are you going to get up to out there? Are you going to be actually like focusing on school and all of that? And so I was able to maintain my grades throughout this entire time, but this was all during my junior year. So yeah, what happened was it was like my freshman year I got there, it was like fun. I was experimenting with drugs. Things started to like slowly go downhill. And then by my junior year, I went on this like rapid downward spiral and it all kind of like built up with these like little moments in these little bottoms along the way. And then it was one morning in particular, my junior year that I just woke up at 1 p.m. because of God knows what in my system from the night before, which was really out of character. So I was like a rock until one. And I woke up and I had, was immediately faced with what had happened, you know, the night before. And it was just, 
it to me, it was like the breaking point where I was so overwhelmed. It was so far beyond my capacity of what I felt like I could handle. I couldn't even walk out of my room. Like I remember I locked my bedroom door and I called my parents and I called my mom and I was just like, please get me out of here. Like, I need you to get me out of here right now. And it was this like unbelievable state of panic. And at that point, like she had known, I mean, it, for her, it was an instant like, okay, I'm on it. And it was like a feeling of relief, I think, because she had witnessed how bad things had gotten for me. Like she had witnessed it when I was at home on break. She had witnessed it on family vacations when I was sneaking off doing drugs in the bathroom and passing out in hotel lobbies. And so for her, I think it was like, all right, you know, like I'm acting on this immediately. And so I flew back and next thing you know, I'm in rehab and I didn't want to go to rehab. I didn't want to acknowledge that I had a problem with substances. I just wanted her to figure out all this stuff. Like I just wanted her to take away the drama and take away like, you know, some of the consequences of my actions, but I was definitely not ready to take responsibility at that time. Like I was not ready to call myself an alcoholic or an addict. And so I took a six week hiatus from school during that time. And I went to outpatient treatment at Hazleton in Chicago. And I went through the motions and I, you know, I I did what I needed to do. But in my mind, I was always, I need to be careful of what I share here because this therapist might say that I can't go back to school. And this is great for them, but I'm going to learn to moderate. Like I know that I can moderate. I'm not as bad as these people. I'm still young. There was all of these ways I was othering myself from the people in the rooms there. And so I really did believe that. So I went through treatment, um, not being honest with myself or the other people, but definitely gaining a lot of really valuable skills during that time. And also during that time, I think it's worth noting that my mom was bringing me regularly to the local yoga studio. And that teacher was incredible and really wove a lot of valuable like philosophy and wisdom into the practice. And so that's kind of in a way where I think my recovery began. And I always like to say to people like recovery begins before the day you get sober, because I think that that was starting to do a lot of like the deeper work and I was gaining tools, but I ended up going back to school and starting to drink and then eventually starting to use drugs again soon after. And it took me another, you know, three years to learn the lessons before I was really ready to get sober. I love that what you just said because I also I was somebody that was like a chronic relapser. I hate I always say I always qualify this by saying I hate using that term because it's so like institutional to call somebody a chronic relapser, but like people know what I mean when I say it, right? I relapsed all the time and you just feel like such a failure. And it starts to get scary because it's like, I think maybe I can't do it. Like, am I one of the ones they would say in meetings, like some of us die that others may live. And I was like, I'm that person. But I realized only in sobriety at the five-year mark, when I was having a conversation with a friend, she actually listens to the show. Hi, Kim. Hopefully now I'll know if she listened to this episode. (laughs) I was having a conversation with Kim. She was actually my original co-host. And I realized through that conversation that I had been gaining tools and resources as I was going through programs and as I was going through treatment. And one of the most valuable resources I got too was from a spin teacher in 2007, eight, before I even really, like I knew I had a problem, but I was nowhere near doing anything about it. You and I have talked about this, how similar our stories are. I thought it was the Coke, not the alcohol. I also, by the way, my first love was cocaine. I'll never forget the first time I shared this on your show that I did Coke. And I was like, oh, this is my life now. 
Like, this is how I want to feel all the time. If this is how other people feel, I can do this. And this spin teacher used to like change my life with what she said, which is why I incorporate that kind of philosophy into my classes now. So do you remember anything that she would say? Has anything stuck with you or any particular moment from any of those classes, like a saying or a phrase or a moment with her? Yeah. Well, first of all, I love that you say that. And I remember when we were talking, like, I love how in your podcast, you incorporate like some of the wisdom that you share in your class, because I seriously think like fitness instructors and yoga teachers have been some of my most influential, like spiritual teachers. And some of the things that I've learned, because I think there's really something to be said about learning it in your body. Like I'll just, I'm going to give one example. I'll tell you about the previous yoga teacher, but just this past year, I have been, you know, going through a really difficult time with grief and I was doing spin class with Allie Love on the Peloton. And I just remember like I was doing these really difficult Tabata classes, like this hit class and just so physically challenged. And she would say like, dig deep, you know, dig deep and, and like, you know, just kind of offer some of this wisdom about how when we feel like we have to give up and we're at our limit and we can't do this, like we have this inner reserve that we can tap into and we just have to dig deep into it. And for me, like it always translates to something off the yoga mat, off the bike, off the mountain. You know, I love hiking, but, but yeah, I mean, I would say during that time. So yeah, I mean, I think Also, one thing I'll say is like, I like to keep a little journal and like write those things down and replay them in my mind. Because I think when you learn something in your body, like on a somatic level, it also just sticks naturally. But yeah, you know, during that time for me, I think which was what was most powerful was like holding a physical posture because it was always like, you know, in my mind, like substances, they're that quick relief. You know, you don't have to be with any level of discomfort because you always have something that is going to alter the state that you're in. But, you know, when it came to being in a posture and it's actually not that specific teacher, but it's another teacher that I was going to in Chicago years later, he had actually had a history of PTSD. And so I just knew that there was something deeper in his teachings, but, you know, just being in holding a plank pose and, you know, just being reminded, like you can hold this, anything, you know, focus on your breath and you can stay with this for five deep breaths. Like don't let your mind tell you otherwise. Like this is your opportunity to like really meet that part of yourself that says, no, you can't put your knees down. And to me, it's like that inner critic that is always like, you can't do this. You need something else. You're not good enough. Like you're not strong. You're weak. You know, all these different things. It's like you get to actually come face to face with that part of yourself and challenge that inner dialogue and using your breath. Like what I started doing was I would just start counting down in the yoga postures five deep breaths. I'd be like five, four, three, two, one, really deep, long breaths. And I'm like, there's no way they're going to hold us. I started to work out like they're not going to hold us more than like five to eight breaths. And sometimes it would be longer. But by the time I got there, I was like, well, it can't be much longer. And so it was like, (laughs) my breath became this tool. I was like, if I can just stay with my breath and not just like focus on, oh, I'm in so much pain. I want to get out. And so that has really remained for me as like where the physical practice became so powerful for me was being able to build this sense of strength and resilience in my body on the mat, which of course translated to so much more. 
I love that you get to meet that part of you that is resisting. How did he say it? You meet that part of you that thinks you can't do it. Yeah. It's like that, you know, that that inner dialogue that we all have. And I think to me, it's like this work around the inner critic. It's a lifelong journey for me. Like I still to this day, and I noticed that like when we bring this up in, you know, the, the virtual meetings that I do, it always touches a serious pain point for people because it's really hard when you bring awareness to that part of yourself that is really, really like spewing so much negativity and criticism. And if we can acknowledge that from like a loving place, and again, like, it's like, where does that come from? You know, because I think at the end of the day, that voice, that part of ourself is just trying to keep us safe and protect us. Totally. And, you know, doesn't want us stepping outside of our comfort zone because that feels scary and it feels dangerous. I love all of this. I'm literally going to, I've been like, so in each class, I always like, I listen to a lot of stuff like this, podcasts like this, or Brit Frank or books on tape that are inspiring. And I'm always looking for lessons for my spin classes. This is going to be what I say for the next week or so. I use I use them for about a, a week or so. And I want to talk about like meeting that inner critic and having the opportunity to challenge that dialogue when we're in like an isolation or something. I love what you just said that when you can learn something in your body, it really sticks with you. I agree with that. And I'm always encouraging, and I have such a wide range of, of audience and listeners. And for some of them work out, a lot of people don't, and they'll DM me and they'll be like, dude, I hear you. And I want to, <laughs> and, but I'm just like, it's hard for me to this. And I like, I so understand that because I only really started when that woman changed my life, when it was just like a class with someone else, it was still like a bitch for me to get to the gym until I met her. And she wove that in and like finding an instructor and, and a class that resonates with you, I think is so helpful, which is why I, I actually often recommend group fitness classes. Like they have them where you are, they have them at a Y and a Y is really inexpensive or you can go to a place like where I teach now, which is like, you know, a franchise. And like in that group element, you can start to learn things that you take out of the room with you. I remember the same woman, Mandy, she was talking about, we were in chair pose. And this is probably the first time I experienced learning something in your body. And she was talking about the bottom half of your body being grounded while your arms lift. And she was like, this is you being like grounded in reality, grounded in who you are, but still ever like reaching for more. And I just thought it was so cool. And it was like such a beautiful way to put that. And I've always tried to do that. So you learned that then, but you didn't stop drinking for another few years. So are you still doing yoga during this time? Like drinking, but going to classes sometimes? Yeah. So I... You know, at that time, this was 13 years ago, the first time that I went to treatment. And I think times have changed a lot now, but I had no conception of what I was, I think 19 years old. I was pretty young. I wasn't even 20 yet. And I had no idea of what a life worth living would be without any form of drinking even, you know, that's like how my entire world was like, that is what you do. Like, that's how you socialize. That's how you connect with people. Like, even I saw that as like, this is how I'm going to network with work one day. So for me, I was just like, I, you know, I can work this out. Like I was pretty convinced that I could work it out. So I went back to school and I started regularly going to classes and yeah, it was like, you know, I would go and, you know, sometimes I would be hungover. It's like, you know, when you go on the class and you can like smell the alcohol coming 
coming out of your pores. But I do remember like I just felt this sense of like I'm okay when I was on the yoga mat. Like it was this sort of place where I could just, I don't even want to say escape because it's like the opposite of escape, but I could just be okay with myself. Like I just remember going to those classes and even though I still had a lot of shame and especially, you know, after going to a treatment program and then drinking again and blacking out, like then it gets really, really bad because then you already know that you have a problem and you're still blacking out and you're really disconnected from that inner truth. And so, yeah, I continued to practice and I finished out my senior year of school there. And then I ended up moving back to Chicago and I got a job at a digital advertising agency in Chicago which was like a top ad agency in Chicago, which this is kind of the crazy thing. And I think it's so important for people to know, like you can be really high functioning while still struggling with a major drinking and drug problem. And so when I got back to Chicago, you know, I kind of see it as this time where like everybody around me was kind of growing up and I was still stuck in this addiction with cocaine. And I didn't really think of myself as addicted, but the truth is whenever I would go out drinking, I really like, I felt like I needed it. And I was too ashamed to suggest it all the time because I knew that people were not going to be, you know, up for it anymore. And so I either found myself like intentionally being around people who were going to be spending the weekends like up until five in the morning, or I ended up connecting with this drug dealer in Chicago who would deliver. So what would, what started happening, which really, really freaked me out was, well, first of all, I was doing this when I was out with my friends sometimes. So I'd be drinking and I would text him and I would end up going out and meeting him and getting my own. And I would be like in the bathroom doing little bumps or, you know, having my own little secret party, which is so weird to think about. It's like literally living a double life. And, and sometimes I was, you know, doing it with other people too. But so this started happening when I was at work functions. So the agency that I worked at was very like work hard, play hard. There was really, really big drinking culture. I mean, it's how you network with people like at other agencies. And, you know, we had, we were in media buying. So we had like sales partners that were whining and dining and taking us out and planning these big industry events. So I'd be out at these dinners and we'd be, you know, drinking a bunch and I would get that little ping that was like, oh, I need cocaine, you know? And if I was, if I had had, you know, maybe a few drinks, I could talk myself out of it and be like, don't be ridiculous. Like you're at a work event, but I started actually acting on that. And so I would wake up in the morning and be super freaked out because I was like, I could have come out of the bathroom with a a ring around my nose. Somebody could have heard me. Somebody could have, you know, seen something. And so I would just be like playing out the whole scenario. And there was always some leftover. So I would end up flushing it down the toilet, which is like a huge waste of money too. the whole thing. And I mean, not like it would be better to have finished it, but so, you know, there was like a period of about four weeks where it got really bad, where that was happening. But then, you know, there was a couple instances where I would come back to my apartment after that happening and I would finish it on my own in my bedroom. And I would kind of come to like out of my, you know, drunken blackout a little bit and just have these moments of disgust, you know, like I'd kind of be sitting there like really high on cocaine by myself and be like, who are you? You know, like it was just like this absolute feeling of disgust and so alone because it's like I'm surrounded by so many friends and people in my agency who respect me and I'm living this totally double life and they would be totally shocked to know 
that this is what I'm doing. And so there were a couple instances where like, I remember I dragged my best friend out of bed at one point when I was like, you know, it was probably like three or four in the morning and I was just kind of like spilling it all out. And I wasn't asking for help or saying that I wanted to get sober. It was like, I just needed someone to know. And I did the same thing. Like I showed up at my brother's apartment and like, you know, he just sat and listened and and then finally, you know, the the last, it, the final straw was there was one night where this happened and I find myself once again in my bedroom, really high on cocaine alone. And this time it's like a couple times I had called in sick for work, which was totally out of character. But this time it was like, that was not going to be an option because first of all, I'd just been rotated to a new team and we were in the middle of a really important planning period. And I just knew that, you know, the team that I had been on previously, it was like before things got really bad. And I think that, you know, I was respected at my agency. Like I was on a board of future digital leaders, but I felt like this new team I was on was kind of like a little bit like onto me and, and not in like a a drug sense, but just sort of like kind of annoyed that I didn't really always have it together with work. And so I, I made it up in my mind, like, I can't not go in today. And so I decide that I'm going to go in and then I kind of get myself, you know, I'm going to finish this. And like, I was already like super wired and you know, you've got, you kind of, some of these moments when I was alone in my room, I'd be like, really, I started to feel like this, like inspiration. Like I was like, you know, you go through these periods of like, oh, this is great. Like I'm, you know, I'm enjoying myself. And so Anyway, I think I might have had some Adderall too. So I actually decided to go into the office and I went in super, super early because I thought I was going to get like ahead of things. And so I take the train downtown from my apartment and I'm literally on Michigan Avenue. Like if anybody knows the city of Chicago, it's like right where the bean is, like right downtown Chicago and like taking the taking the elevator up and it's before anyone had gotten in. I mean, this is probably like between five and six in the morning. And I sat down in my cubicle, I'm like under the artificial lights. And, you know, I'm like, I start, I literally started to like open and my job was a lot of like, it was digital media planning. And so there was a lot of like crunching numbers and Excel spreadsheets and all of that involved. And so I like pull this up and I'm literally sitting there and it like becomes clear to me, like how not realistic this day is going to be. And of course I'm starting to kind of like come down and feel just like super not good. It was one of those moments where I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, like these were the moments where it's like, I I kind of would go back and forth between like having this grand idea of like, oh, I'm going to go into the office to being like, you know, realizing like, I can't do this right now. And so I thank God I left my office that morning before anyone came in because I literally hadn't slept from the night before. Like I had been there plenty of times where I'd had a really late night and got a few hours of sleep, but this was something really different. And so I got on the train and I went back and I remember like I got a little bit of alcohol. I had some alcohol that morning before I went back home and I like got back in my bedroom and it was just like, it's up, you you know, like this is it. And I had had these little moments of clarity before, like, I think it's, they started to like kind of show up in these like tiny little spurts. Like when I decided to like grab my friend or, you know, show up at my brother's house, but it didn't last. Like it wasn't like a moment of clarity, but in that moment, it was like, you can't hide from yourself anymore. Like you cannot control this. And I realized like, this is going to end really bad. Like I could have, there are so many times where like 
I could have been found out at a work party or, you know, in that morning, like if I were to see someone, like I don't even know what their thoughts might have been if they would have known. Like, because that's the thing is I got so good at hiding it from the outside world. But so I, yeah, I realized like I'm done. And at that point, fortunately, because I had already been to treatment once before, there was no mystery to me. And I think that's why it took me for a long time to like accept it because I was like, this is a decision to be sober for the rest of my life. Like, this is not something that I'm turning back from. And I was clear, like at that point I was like, okay, like I get it now. And so I called up my mom and I didn't tell her over the phone, but I was like, hey, like no work today. Do you want to come meet me for a coffee? And <laughs> she came like my poor mom. She came and, you know, sat down and and I felt really bad because, you know, my parents had paid for me to go to treatment once before. And I just totally like did not engage with it at all. And I pretty much went right back to drinking. And so I guess, you know, it's a little bit of a slap in the face. And so she was, she's always, both of my parents have been always really supportive, but I think there was like a a bit of a, are you serious? Like, you know, and, (laughs) and I was very like, you know, I'm done. Like this is, I know what I need to do and I never want to touch any of this again. And so that was, that was the beginning of recovery for me. (laughs) Okay. I have a question. Then I want to go back to that. What did you say? Did you call out? What did you say? I'm getting anxious right now. What did you say to your new team and your new boss when you left? Yeah. So that's actually really good. So a good question and an important part of the story. So I worked on three different accounts at the time I was at the agency. There was the first one that I went to, and then there was this team like in the middle that I was on for a short period of time. And so I had sent an email the day that I, after I got back, when I I got back from being in my office for that short period of time, I sent an email and it was really interesting. I didn't email that I was sick. I wrote to her and said, I'm having a panic attack, like that it was like a mental health crisis. And which I look back and I'm like, that's so interesting that I chose to do that because I could be wrong, but I feel like people weren't really having that kind of open conversation about mental health as much at that time. But she was so understanding. And to be honest, I was really scared of this supervisor. I think it was just because I was really like insecure about my own behavior and she really took things seriously. Like she was, you know, she ran like a strict team and we worked long hours and there was no like bullshitting with her. And she was so kind and understanding and wrote back and was like immediately. And I knew it was a big deal because like I said, I wouldn't have shown up in the office if I didn't know it was like a really important time to be there. Like that particular week, like I was definitely letting my team down and putting a lot of work on other people. Like that was supposed to be probably like a 10 hour, 12 hour day that was then put on someone else. And so she was really understanding. So I ended up, you know, going back after I, my mom came downtown, I went back to the suburbs to stay at my parents' house. And the first day, you know, I was, I literally just like slept on the couch. My mom always talks about this. Like my younger siblings were like, what's going on with Mary? You know, she's she still sleeping. And it took me like, you know, a few days to kind of like feel like a normal person again. But I enrolled in outpatient treatment at Hazleton and was miraculously able to continue to still work during that time because it was nights and weekends oh. treatment. But okay. the thing was, so I think I took a couple of days like when I was first getting started, but then I met with her. Like I remember going into the office and I met with her. And the thing is, 
for anyone who's worked in an ad agency, I'm assuming they're still like this. Like it's not a nine to five. It's really late hours. And there's a lot of stuff that goes on after work that you kind of need to be a part of because it's where a lot of the networking happens. And so I kind of had to come to terms with the fact that like, it might not be possible to leave at 5 p.m. for this program, or I think that's when it was, like five or six was when it started, and just be okay with the fact that she might tell me, like, we can't keep you. But I also think that I don't know that you can necessarily say that because, like, you know, like it's, it's Back, outside of work hours. Oh, you mean you, they couldn't say that because it was technically overtime or they couldn't say that because you were getting treatment for a disability? Well, probably a mix of reasons. Yeah. But like I said, I mean, she was so understanding about it. So we sat down and had a meeting together and I was like, I'm really, you know, this is not like public information. I was so secretive and I really didn't want to tell her, but like I had to tell her because I was going to have to leave the office. And so again, she was super understanding and I was kind of like, how do you see this working? Because we were a team and we all sat in this kind of pod, like all next to each other. And it was kind of a unwritten rule that you don't just get up and leave when other people have work to do. Like you're not the person who gets up and leaves at five o'clock when the rest of this team is, has three more hours of work to do. And she was just very understanding and we'll make it work. And I know that there was definitely like probably some questions raised, but we did make it work. And I think it's really important for people to know that because I have this conversation a lot with people now where they're trying to delay getting help. And even if it's not going to treatment, even if it's like a gray area drinking thing, it's like, oh no, I'm too busy. You don't understand. Like I'm a mom, I have this job. And it's like, everything else will reorganize itself around your treatment. Like it has to be the priority. Whatever you need to do for your mental health or your recovery, like the rest will take care of itself. And so, I mean, for me, like a huge part of that was just making my recovery a priority and not worrying what people might be saying when I left and that they think I'm like a slacker or I'm selfish or, you know, all the other things that were going through my head, but it ended up working out and it worked out fine. And so I did that six week treatment and I ended up getting rotated off of that team and onto another team, which was kind of like a major relief for me because it was like that period was a really dark time in my life. And I had a lot of shame about that. And I just didn't really feel it was, yeah, it was just an, it represented a kind of uncomfortable period. And so I ended up rotating and I enrolled in my first yoga, 200 hour yoga teacher training after the treatment finished, which was again, like a godsend because I was going into summertime in Chicago. Like I got sober on April 27th, 2013. And so after like six weeks after that, it was summertime in Chicago, which to me was like, summer festivals, drinking on Lake Michigan, like all the different things. And so then yoga teacher training ended up being a place where I could be in a safe community space, fill the time, not worry about, you know, making excuses of why I'm not drinking or why I'm not going out. I still wasn't ready to be open about my sobriety. So it created this like really nice buffer. And not only that, but it was like all the work that you're doing through the practice of yoga and learning about like the deeper aspects of the practice, the philosophy of yoga. And during that process too, I started to like really connect with myself on a deeper level. And it's like, you know, I think it's interesting because when we use substances, we're able to numb out from the difficult stuff, right? It's like we find the relief from the anxiety or the insecurity or, you know, the pain, whatever it is. But 
we're also numbing out the other stuff, like the inner wisdom and, you know, the things that are trying to come through. And I think that it was very hard to hide the fact that now I wasn't really sure that I wanted to be working in this industry. Like, do I really want to be working at an agency where there's a beer cart that goes around at 5 p.m. and where, you know, a part of my job is this expectation to go out, you know, for these like seven course meals when everyone is going out for drinks? And do I really want to be sitting under artificial lights all day in a cubicle crunching numbers? Like, is this... And so I started to kind of explore, like, what would it look like to teach yoga full time? Or, you know, I started to kind of like entertain ideas that I never would have entertained before because it would have been like, what? Like, that's that's ridiculous. You know, I can teach yoga full time. And during that time of like asking questions and finding more clarity, a friend of mine came out and visited and she was visiting from Denver. And she told me that she was planning to quit her job and take a three-month trip to Southeast Asia to backpack because she just realized that even though she had this great job lined up right out of school and was on this like great career path that she was just really unfulfilled. And I had this like instantaneous, like, I got to go too. Like, can I come with you? And which was crazy because I couldn't have even pinpointed Thailand on the map at that time. I knew nothing about that part of the world. There was just something deep in me that was like, you need to go. And not only you need to go, but it was like, you can do this, you know, like you can go and do this. Whereas before I would have never had the confidence or willingness to go and do something and take such a big leap like that. So that's what I ended up doing early on in recovery, which I know they say you're not supposed to make any dramatic life changes in early recovery, but... So you quit your job? So I saved up. I, it wasn't like an impulsive, immediate thing. Okay. It wasn't immediate. Because I was going to say, how did you pay for this? So you saved up some money first. Yeah. So, you know, when okay. you're not buying cocaine for yourself on a regular <laughs> basis, when you're not going out drinking and taking taxis around the city, like I started to just really, like I was in my yoga teacher training, I would go to yoga and I I really focused on saving. So from that point on, she came, I think it was in the summer that she came to visit and I had it up until about... December, maybe it was like summer, fall that she came out. And so I saved and we were traveling very modestly. I mean, we were backpacking around Southeast Asia, staying in hostels and doing a lot of like, you know, yeah, things that weren't going to be really expensive anyway, but I was able to save up until that time. And then I left my job at the end of the year, which to me was really necessary. Like that was a really difficult time. And I don't think that I was really setting myself up for, for success. Like I was not open about my recovery. And I really, again, it was like, I felt like I was living this double life now just in a different way in recovery because nobody at my office knew that I was in treatment except for that supervisor. And so, yeah. So what would you say when you guys went out and you weren't drinking? What would you say? Oh my gosh. There was one time when I was in outpatient treatment at Hazleton, I remember I had already organized an around the world bar crawl with this group of people at my office. So I had to go. And I remember I was in my group therapy and they were like, do you really have to go? And I was like, you guys don't understand. Like I have to go. Like I, this will be, I I would need some really big reason 
why I'm not going. And it was funny because like we had these passports and there were different bar stops. So there was like Paris That sounds Club. fun and interesting. <laughs> yeah. That was a cool creative idea. I like it. But yeah. okay, so you had to go because you orchestrated this. Yeah. And that was, you know, what I, I was always kind of like squeamish, dodging questions, like trying to have like the fake drink. And it was really, really hard. You know, it's not how I would recommend. And it's definitely not how I coach people and support people now and their recovery is okay. because for me, it was like this very kind of shriveling up, hiding. It was like, I was kind of playing this game of dodging questions the whole night. And okay. that was really, really hard. And I remember one of the moments that sticks out most in my mind, because, you know, people often express this concern that when you turn down a drink, people are going to have a real problem with it and give you a hard time. And I really believe that majority of the case that doesn't happen. Like I've rarely ever seen that happen. Never happened to me. Nobody's ever hassled me about it. They're like, cool. Yeah. But there was one time when I was at this Christmas party, it's like the annual Christmas party that all the people in like marketing and advertising in Chicago go to. And there was a person that was not at the agency that I worked for. And I won't disclose any information, but we had kind of known each other through being the people that got super drunk. And that's, and that's who I was, you know, that's who I was known for. And, and he was really drunk in that moment and was like wanting to take shots and realized that I wasn't drinking and kind of just went on this little tangent about like, do you think you're better than us now or something like that? And it was, it was in such a drunken state, but it was like my worst fear realized. Like I remember just like shriveling up and just feeling like so afraid. And now I see that's so much more of a reflection on him. And again, for anyone who has that concern, it's like that I can count the number of times that's happened on less than one hand, like any sort of confrontation or resistance to the fact that I'm not drinking. But for me, another thing that that taught me was I was just like, I don't want to be in this environment, you know, like I I don't want to be in an environment where it's a problem, especially in a work environment, you know, like where I'm being shamed or like it's somehow translated to, I think I'm better than everyone else. And, you know, the irony of that is like, nobody knew that I was actually in treatment for addiction. Like I wanted to be like, you know what, like you have no idea. Like, I do not yeah. think I'm better than you. I'm at the lowest point in my life right now. You know? I, I feel like a fucking loser if, you know, if, if you actually wanted to know. So you said it's not what you coach people to do when they're in that situation. What do you recommend someone does? Like say someone's listening and they have a job or drinking as part of it and they're going to still be doing it. What do you recommend somebody says to someone if they question whether or not they don't drink? Yeah. So I think the first thing that's really important is to be aware that you don't need to necessarily show up for every single thing and get really clear on what those things are that you genuinely need to be at. And you also don't need to be the last one at the party. Like I, I oftentimes would put this pressure on myself. Like I needed to like show face throughout the entire thing, even when people were getting really wasted. So I think the first thing is like actually just having an honest look at like what is necessary, you know, when it comes to these drinking events. But yeah, when it comes to if you're going into a social situation where alcohol is present, it's really helpful to be practiced in how you're going to respond and not just leave that to the moment because it's so much more about the way that you deliver your response. It's about the energy that you bring and your body language and how clear and direct you can be. So to say, you know, oh, I'm not drinking. I have a, you know, I have a kombucha or I have 
whatever your preferred drink is, or, oh, I'm already good, you know, just to be able to deliver that with confidence, like that in itself, because what I see, and I did this myself, a lot of times it's like going into this really apologetic spiel or kind of word vomiting or just like shriveling up and like getting awkward about it when it doesn't have to be awkward. And I think we're so fortunate to be in a time now where the conversation is changing so much, where a lot of people know so many other people who choose not to drink for so many other reasons. So if you're worried about being like stigmatized or, you know, them making judgments about you, I think that we can kind of relax a little more into the knowing that like a lot of people are just making this choice as a health decision. And also, you know, there's so many times now it's like, okay, we're in dry July right now or, you know, dry January. I think sometimes for those those types of things, people like find it easier to say, oh, I'm doing an alcohol-free challenge. I'm not drinking. But the point to me is it's just be direct. And one other thing I'll say is don't try to go at it if you can completely by yourself. Like you're mm-hmm. alone navigating this sea of drunk people. Like if you can totally. have one person that either knows your situation and is going to be like your friend that you can kind of go up to and will just kind of like ease off some of the social pressure so you can just feel a little more relaxed. Like you don't have to be so switched on and worried. Like you can just stand by that person and chat and feel safe. That is huge. And if you can identify that person, I really, really recommend not trying to go at it on your own. That is a really good idea. Like, and evaluating what you actually have to go to. So, like, my current boss, who is the woman I bought my studio from, we've been working together for a really long time. When she turned 30, she got a party bus. This is at our old studios a long time ago. And one of the people that was going to be on the bus had mentioned Coke to me before. And I just knew she would have it. And I had like 18 months or two years, not a lot. But it was like my boss and she was my friend. And I was like really rising at that studio, right? Like the path was clear that I was going to be either a co-owner with them or something. And I really felt like I needed to go. And I remember calling, but I I, I didn't want to go. And I didn't always feel that way. Like I'd been around them drinking before, but this was going to be an all night thing. I'm stuck on the bus. I can't leave. It's cruising the gas lamp. It's going to go till three, four in the morning. I know that. And I'm going to be stuck in high heels in a dress sober. No, none of that sounds comfortable. None of that sounds comfortable. And it was dicey to say no. I knew it was going to bum her out. We're obviously fine. She actually never even got mad or brought it up. She probably didn't remember it happened. But like I spoke with my sponsor and I was like, I'm really kind of not feeling like I should go to this. And I remember my sponsor was like, dude, you don't have to kiss anybody's ass right now. Like you're crushing it in classes. You don't have to go to that fucking thing. And my sponsor is very like, she's like super direct. She always gives me good advice and always like, she like shores me up for the fight. She's like my best hype man ever. And I'm like, yeah, you're right. That's right. And I ended up not going. A few years later, my best friend renewed her vows in Vegas. And I was supposed to be the maid of honor in her wedding, but I was homeless instead at a Motel 6 and kicked heroin for the first time and didn't make it obviously, to her wedding. Now this is five years later. And I did want to go to that. I had like three years, but I brought my mom who was also sober and who could take care of me. And it was like an awful trip for her. She had to drive out there. It's not even her friends. I felt so bad for her. She was the only one with the car. So people were like asking her to give them rides. It was a horrible trip for my mom, but she went with me. And so like I made those decisions, right? Like Vegas, yes, this is my oldest friend. I was supposed to be there anyway, five years ago. Maybe I can make good on this. And then party bus, gas lamp, four in the morning, fuck it, no. You know what I mean? Like, can, cause that's another, that's another way that I decide, like what you just said, can I leave? Can I leave? Right. You know, that's important. 
Yeah. And I think that's so important. And I think a lot of us struggle with that in recovery. It's like, I realized like I didn't know anything about boundaries and, you know, I didn't know that that was okay to say no. Like I always felt like I needed to do things for other people or like I would be a bad friend or, and it just goes back to that idea. It's like your recovery has to come first. And like that needs to be the priority because that's the thing that almost cost us everything else, you know, and it's so easy to lose sight of that. But I remember like even a year into sobriety, I was living in a yoga and meditation retreat center in Cambodia, living this like very, there was no alcohol on the premise. And I was like, you know, it was really like this living yoga a hundred percent. And in between retreats, I was living and teaching at this yoga and meditation retreat center. But in between retreats, sometimes people would go into the town of Siem Reap where there was a lot of, you know, it was like a whole row of bars and like all of that. And, you know, just kind of like hang out and party and whatever. And I felt so good about myself and like confident in my sobriety. Like it wasn't even a thought. Like a lot of that insecurity that I felt when I was in Chicago being sober had just kind of left because I was like, I'm in an environment where I'm surrounded by people who have like a shared set of values. They're here to practice yoga. They're here to like really commit to these practices. And the whole center was designed around that. But when I stepped outside of that environment, you know, I tried to just go and meet people and just to go and like sit down and kind of like socialize. And I felt, you know, like I'm okay in my sobriety to do this. And the truth is like, it's not like I was afraid that I was going to start drinking, but what stood out to me most is like when I was in that environment, my whole sense of self-worth and confidence and everything was like really affected. And I just started to feel awkward. Like I couldn't really, I didn't really feel comfortable speaking in that environment. Cause it's like, again, it's like this version of myself has never existed in you know, a bar like this with pictures of Long Island iced tea and kind of like meeting random people while everyone's like getting a little bit buzzed. And I just, the way it made me felt about myself, I remember like it took me some time because I started to feel that sort of shriveling up and feeling really uncomfortable. And just like, I didn't, it's like, I didn't know what to contribute or say, like, I didn't know how to engage. And I ended up just like looking at the friends I was at and I was like, I'm going to walk back, you know, to the hostel and like, I walked myself back and I just remember being like, I shouldn't do that. You know, like I don't need to prove anything. And I felt amazing two days ago when I was like in an environment where I felt, you know, like I was connected to the things that have always really supported me and really aligned with where I'm at right now in my recovery. And like, this is really not good territory. You know, like you don't hang around. There's a reason you don't hang around in bars when you're sober like, because we all want that feeling of connection, right? Like we want to feel like we belong in that environment and we're connecting with other people. And, you know, how can we do that when for one, there's a substance involved, which is inherently disconnecting everyone from themselves, but you're not participating in the behavior that the whole thing is centered around. So I really believe for me, it's like the more that I cannot you know, identify those situations and be like, I can still socialize with these people, but it doesn't have to be here. And it's like those friends that I know that I really bonded with in those situations, I would just start to get proactive about planning other things. Like when I got sober and I was still living in Chicago, it was like I would get up and, you know, bike ride with my friend to the farmer's market on a Saturday morning, which we never would have done when I was still using because I would have been too hungover and I would have been too preoccupied with where we're going for brunch, you know, but it was like our relationship just kind of changed in a really positive way. 
I love that idea because like this has been a very, very hard lesson for me in sobriety because I, I had a bunch of friends at my studio that are not in recovery, these women that I love and they drink and I don't. And they're super respectful of that. And I would often feel left out when they'd go to like a bar or they would like go to concerts at like a little venue here. And I was like never included. And I would really feel left out. Then I would bum everybody out because I was clearly felt left out. And, you know, like, but the idea of getting proactive in other ways is a really good idea. Like I kind of tried to do that because like in another environment, like at my studio, we served mimosas. We do at this one too. We had booze in the studio all the time. Never bothered me once. I could pour the drink for you. I think because the environment was like the studio. And so like like I could actually be around the alcohol and it didn't feel different to me at all. It was totally fine. But like for me, what you just said is an easier way to accept not going to like the bar invites, right? Like the concert invites where like the goal is drinking and then constructing other ways to see them and just like getting proactive in other ways because they're all like super healthy, not alcoholic people. Like they could do anything during the day. You know what I mean? Like I, I like that idea. I think that's a really good solution because I this year started feeling like, is it one or the other? Do I have to just like never be, you know, do, does my social group need to go back to just like only AA people or like, can I find can I find a balance here? Because I've found most of my friends through fitness and they happen to not be alcoholics, right? We're a smaller, you know, smaller majority of the population, right? Smaller percentage. And so like, I think what you just said is, is like a great balance. So you backpack through Asia, you obviously stay for a little while because you end up finding this ashram, it sounds like, and you stay there. Yeah. So I ended up, it was going to be a three month trip backpacker on Southeast Asia, I am just like, what? It was the biggest 180 life turn. I was so like happy and inspired in that environment. And it's really interesting because my recovery started with the 12 steps. And I just like the higher power concept, it didn't really like, uh, to me, I was super open-minded about it, but like, I was sort of like, I don't know, because God has never really been a part of my life. Like, I was always going to church when I was younger, but somebody opened me up to this possibility of, like, connecting to a higher power through nature, which I was just like, all right, that's my higher power. But still, again, like, I wasn't really connected to it. But when I got out to Southeast Asia, like, I remember having these experiences where I just felt, like, this sense of awe in nature that I just don't think I could fully experience when I was using substances. But, like, now, I mean, it's funny because I live now really close to the town where I went to college, Boulder. Some of the most beautiful like hiking. And I feel like I am in this constant state, like this incredible high. Like my sister always makes fun of me when we're hiking together. Like, because like I go through these phases of like, oh my God, you know, you could just like, because I get so overwhelmed by just the beauty of it all. And it's like, that was happening to me when I was traveling. And so I just was following that, you know, like it was just like the three months could not end in three months. And so it ended up being four of us that went on this backpacking trip. And so two of the girls went back after two months and then me and my friend stayed out and she convinced me to do this trek through the Himalayas, which is a 21 day hike, the Annapurna circuit, which was crazy because I was not, you know, I I had not been focused on like fitness or I had been doing my yoga practice, but I had done no sort of preparation and training for this. Okay. So I just have to say this. You basically combined eat, pray, love and wild. (laughs) Yeah. You're like, you did both of them. (laughs) You're like the female protagonist from both of these combined in one. That's very cool. You did it before those books came out. (laughs) 
I completely original idea. I can't claim to be Cheryl Strait because she was like a little bit more, she was like out there on her own in the wilderness. Right. But yeah, right. no, it was definitely beyond my comfort zone. But yeah, so I was just like really leaning into every opportunity to try something new. And that was kind of like a peak experience. I think it still is like in my life, mostly because again, what we talked about with like the fitness thing is like, it was so far beyond what I physically felt capable of. And one of the things that came to mind when you said that before with how you like to encourage people to work out and sometimes they're like, oh, I, I don't like fitness. I was that person. Like I, I did not like to exercise at all. The only times I associated exercise with fixing my body getting skinnier, losing weight. It was such a negative experience. And to the point that usually I was just like, I'm just going to restrict what I eat because I can't, you know, I had a really unhealthy relationship when I was younger with like exercise and body image. And so the whole thing was just like wrapped up in negativity and I didn't want to do it. And it's crazy to think about now because to me, like movement is, it's mental health, it's medicine. It's like I love movement, but it's only because it wasn't go work out. You know, you need to spend like in this specific type of workout, like this is what you need to do. It was more like exploring what feels good in my body. And so I think like for anyone who has that kind of narrative of like, oh, but I don't like working out. It's like, I like to think of it as like, what movement do you like? In what way do you like to move your body? Is it dance? Is it yoga? Is it stretching? Is it cycling with like an epic playlist and teacher? And like, I can only imagine what your classes are like, but yeah. So they're intense. That was another big thing is like that really changed my relationship with like physical movement and especially challenging physical movement because it was like, and I was like, all the cliches were like playing in my mind from the rooms of recovery. Like I was literally like one step at a time for like three weeks because there were times that were really, really hard and I wanted to- Oh, I can't imagine. That's a long walk. 21 fucking days. That's a long walk. Yeah. Yeah. So, but yeah, after that, I ended up getting a job offer at a yoga and meditation retreat center in Cambodia. And I stayed there for a full year, which was wild. So about 40 back-to-back retreats while I was living there and teaching yoga. And, you know, I look back at that now and I really feel like it was an extension of treatment for me because I was not ready to like reintegrate back into Chicago still. And I think that's why I was so resistant to going home because I was like, I can be out here. There's no substances present. Like I'm out in nature. I'm learning new things. I'm like, the culture is so rich out there. Spirituality is so deeply embedded into it too. And so, yeah, I had this opportunity and it was just a very easy, easy yes. And so I ended up, I had a little grass hut. I was living in the Cambodian jungle. There was no Wi-Fi, no air conditioning. It was very like simple living and I loved it. We had this very disciplined, structured daily routine where every morning there would be a gong that would go off and everybody would walk into the yoga shala and we would do chanting and meditation and breathing practice and yoga. And we had Dharma talks where we got into the philosophy, ecstatic dance. It was like the whole day was just planned out. It was like perfect for someone in recovery. My thought is, I know this is really dumb. You weren't able to post any of my audience is going to roll their eyes when I say this, but not be surprised. You couldn't post any of this on Instagram though, (laughs) that you were doing. (laughs) Well, it's funny because there was any evidence of what you did. Did you have a phone, like a picture, like a, I sound like, I sound like I'm from like the 1920s, like a picture phone. You know what I mean? A, A camera phone. Were they around in 2013? Yeah, they were. Yeah, so this was 2014, 2015. So Instagram was so different then. I mean, I remember when we were backpacking, 
we would post like a photo, you know, when we were in different countries, but it was such a different experience. It, it wasn't was totally like different, right? the yeah. endless scroll and stories and like all of that totally. stuff going on. So <laughs> yeah, I would, I mean, once in a while, like I would, when I left the retreat center to go into town where you could go get Wi-Fi. So like in between retreats, we'd have a day or two where you could choose to go into town and, you know, stay at a hotel or do whatever you wanted to do. So I think, I mean, I did, I think I shared like here and there, but we didn't have phones, weren't allowed to be out at the retreat center. I mean, that was a really amazing thing. Like people had to lock their digital devices into a locker and the owner of the center, he didn't even want people reading on iPads because he just didn't like the idea of screens, like interrupting that experience and connection with nature, which if anyone has never had the opportunity to do that, I really can't recommend it enough. Like going on a retreat and just literally not looking at a screen and just allowing yourself to be immersed in nature because, you know, to just be able to like sit with a book or, you know, he would also invite people. He's like, you also don't need to fill every moment of time. You can just lay at a hammock and just gaze up at the sky or, you know, enjoy the nature around you and all of that. So yeah, there wasn't, I mean, I have some photos, like there was one point where a photographer came to do some stuff for the retreat. And I definitely took like some on my phone that I would share in between. I ended up writing a, a blog post for this platform called Yoga Trade, which is a like online global community of yoga teachers and retreat centers and things like that. So the name of the blog was It's Been Real. And I was at the end of it. And I called it that because I thought it was really interesting that a lot of times people would be like, when are you going to come back to the real world? Like, are you ever coming back to the real world? And and I was sort of like, this is the real world. Like we yeah, were like totally. engaging with life, like so totally. immersed in nature. And it was like, that was the cool thing. It was like, there was no substances. No one was distracting themselves with their phone. And it was so vulnerable for a lot of people. It did remind me like treatment because a lot of people were used to socializing with drinks. Like it wasn't a rehab center. So people would sit down and so many times people would sit down for mealtimes and be like, wow, I have never like as an adult sat down with a bunch of strangers like this and just gotten to know people with no drinks on the table. Like this is pretty powerful. And so it was like a really good it was almost like everybody was getting a taste of treatment, you know? And that's so cool. That that's such an amazing experience. So, but that's a really good question. How did you and I have a I probably have like 15 minutes cuz I have a noon call for work. Sorry. So I want to kind of try to like wrap this up as best we can. I knew this was going to happen when you and I were chatting, but okay, <laughs> no so Two points I want to make sure we make. So how did you reintegrate when you came back after a year? How did you reintegrate when, when you were faced with, quote, I know it's not the real life, but, you know, the, the busyness and the hustle of more urban life? Yeah. So I actually stayed out in Southeast Asia. I finished that year at the retreat center and then I went to India. I was planning to spend six months in India because I was just so like, I wanted to learn everything about yoga. Like I was like fascinated by it. And so naturally I wanted to go to India next. And I actually had six months planned to go spend there traveling, but that turned into four because I was given an opportunity to come teach at a beautiful resort in a remote part of Indonesia. And so I ended up staying out there and getting a job. And from there, I started to, like, I really missed the retreat model because I was teaching. I was a resident teacher at a resort. And so I started to create my own retreats. And so I planned retreats. The first one that I ran independently, separate from that retreat center that I worked at was in 
Nicaragua, partnered up with some friends that I knew in Chicago who had actually a creative and design agency. And it was where creativity and um, where yoga and creativity collide. And it was about, we did a lot of like vision boarding and we were in Nicaragua, we did surf lessons and it was just a very fun retreat. And that just kind of created, that started to have its own momentum. So I started running retreats and I actually was traveling and, you know, living mostly based in Southeast Asia for about eight years. It wasn't until last year that I moved back. Wow. Okay. So you stayed there for a while. 